It's episode 111. Today we're going to talk about Americans' view of larger families and how that's changing, how Americans have two very different definitions of the American dream. The megastore Costco sells everything, including gold bars. Now, there's an interactive map that helps you find the ideal location in the U.S. for you to live. Popular posts, we'll look at those this month, and then also a new blog post on four ways to make big donations to your church and save on taxes. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us on the Financial Pathway Podcast with Nate Skelly, where we discuss important financial questions and give you practical advice to guide you on your financial journey. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing and leaving us a review. You can also follow the Financial Pathway page on Facebook for more helpful financial tips and videos. Okay, so we start today with an article from Gallup, the uh, surveying institution. Of course, Gallup has done many different polls going back decades in the United States. This one in particular really caught my eye because they've been doing this survey now going back to the 1930s. It showed that Americans' preference for larger families is now at its highest level since 1971, believe it or not. We know that the American average American family size has been in decline over the years. Certainly, we don't have as big of families as we used to 100 years ago, 200 years ago, and it's just been a steady decline. And you see that across the board. It's not just an American thing. Really, whether you look at Europe, America, Canada, Japan, like the more prosperous and the more developed a country becomes, the lower the birth rate tends to be. And now we're seeing in a lot of these places in Europe, Japan, even China, you're seeing how a prolonged smaller family size is actually creating a problem for these countries because the the, the population is, is not progressing. If your average family size is two or less, your country is actually in decline. The, 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 pop, the natural population is going to decrease. And so it's interesting to see how Americans' preference towards families, not necessarily the reality of family size, but their preference towards family size is starting to change and has been steadily changing uh, for a while now. So the survey asked, what do you think is the ideal number of children for a family to have? And then allowed respondents to choose zero, one, two, three, four, five, six or more. Only 2% of people said zero and only 2% of people said six or more. So the vast majority of people were somewhere between one and five. Most popular answer was two. 44% of people said the ideal number of children is two, but 45% gave an answer three or more. So uh, you know, if you add three, four, five, and six or more, those responses, that was 45%, which is the highest level since 1971. So it's interesting that that over time, and, and really what, what happened is, as you track the survey, which I think started in 1936, back then, of course, the preference was definitely for larger family sizes. Uh, 65% of people said three or answered three or more back then in, in that survey. And that stayed pretty high up through World War Two, and then of course we had the baby boomer generation, which makes sense, right? Their preference was for larger families. And then starting in the 1960s, it begins to rapidly decline. And then by the 1980s, it bottoms out with less than 30% of people saying they preferred a family of three children or more. Since then, it has actually rebounded. And now today, almost half of Americans say that three or more children is the ideal family size. Now, will this actually reflect reality? Will we start to see larger families and, and, and parents having more children? Maybe, maybe not. But it is an interesting, I think, sort of reversion to the mean, if you will, that for such a long time, we... we thought smaller and smaller families were ideal, and maybe we're reaching a little bit of a turning point within our culture to say, actually, you know what? One of the most meaningful and happy and joy-filled things is to raise children and to uh, be self-sacrificial in that way. It's interesting. I saw something that somebody wrote a, a while ago that talked about just 
in general, because Americans we are so individualistic and very self-centered in our view towards a lot of things, that one of the things that we're most hesitant to enter into is parenthood because it's one of the only things in our society that there's really not a way out of, or at least not a way out where you can still be seen as a good person, right? Even whether it's a job or whether it's even marriage, there's almost every arrangement that you enter into in American life you can exit and still kind of retain your reputation and dignity for the most part. But parenthood is one of those things that's really irreversible, right? If you're going to make a commitment to parenthood, that's not something that you can change your mind on. And I think that's part of the reason why we've had more reluctance towards larger family sizes over the years. And it's actually encouraging to me to see that maybe some of those attitudes are starting to turn around. Next article was on misunderstanding the American dream. There is a report from a group called a populist. They've done an extensive study where they talk about Oh, and really what the study was designed to do is to help people uh, uh, articulate what do they feel the American dream is in general? Like what is society's definition of the American dream? And then they also asked them to give their personal definition of success. So what was really interesting about this study is that there was vastly different results in the answers. So generally what happens is when people are asked, what do you think are what, – what, what the American dream is – defined by American society. Like socially, what is the American dream in general? They tend to give a lot of answers uh, that reflect around money and status and luxury items and fame. So questions like, you know, uh, and, and what they did is they gave 60 different attributes and they asked them to rank them based on importance. Number one for, you know, how important is this to achieve the American dream, kind of a general term. And then they asked them to rank those same attributes in terms of what they personally, how they would personally define their own success. And what they found is that the, that arrangement of values was very, very different depending on how people were looking at it. So if they were trying to define what society says is the American dream, they answered a lot. The, the, the attributes that ranked high were things like, is rich, owns a lot of luxury items, is famous, has an advanced degree, owns a business, has a large social media following, has a high status job, is a recognized leader in their profession. But when they were asked to rank their personal success, then that was very different. They talked about uh, whether their work has a positive impact on people, whether they're on track for secure retirement, whether they're a parent, whether they enjoy their work, whether they're debt-free, whether they have a purpose in life, whether they're enjoyable to be around. So very, very different definition of personal success. So it's interesting because basically what they're finding is people in general think the American dream in large is one thing, but when they're really asked, okay, let's get down to brass tacks, what's your personal level of success? In other words, what's your American dream? That's a very different thing. But that's what everybody's saying. So it's weird, isn't it? So we all kind of have this collective delusion that the American dream is one thing, but we're all striving towards, or at least we say we're striving towards something different. And I think what it shows us is that because of our own insecurities and because of our desire to want to signal to other, others our personal success that we've arrived, that we've achieved, and kind of prove ourselves in the eyes of others, that we default towards those things that we perceive as being really important. Like Those are the things that are the American dream, generally speaking, even though deep down we understand that those are not the most important things. And so what was interesting through this study is that they found that the American dream is a lot more personal, not really financial, that success is about having a meaningful life and not getting rich, which I say amen to because it's it's the thing that I'm always talking to in individual conversations with people where we're talking about, okay, why is money important to you? What is What are your true values? What is this all about? And almost always the answer is purpose, 
meaning, things that are not, you know, it's not about money. It's about what money can be used as a tool to be able to do the things that are really most important. And that is be generous. That is spend time with family. That is to be involved in missions, to be involved in your community. And uh, another interesting thing I just wanted to point out that one of the, the findings from the study was that parenting ranked a lot higher than marriage, which is which is definitely concerning to me from this uh, survey that uh, for a lot of Americans, they definitely care about having children and being a parent. However, being married is a relatively much lower ranked priority. So being a parent ranked number four across the board, being married ranked number 19 out of 60. So it wasn't like at the bottom, but it certainly wasn't at the top either. And so I think it just kind of shows generally our society's view towards a committed relationship and, and generally our view towards marriage, which of, of course, you know, ideally we'd like to see that higher because I feel like for myself personally, when you think about what is a successful life, being married and being a parent are right up there to get together, right? And um, I think many of you would say the same. Okay, so let's move on now to Costco, very kind of out of left field sort of article. When I saw this, I definitely scratched my head and said, wait, what now? Yeah, Costco is now selling gold bars. So the bargain price megastore Costco, where you get everything. You get all your groceries and appliances and tires. Now you can get your precious metals there too. So Costco has begun selling these uh, gold bars, these one ounce gold bars. They're a little bit decorative. Uh, in nature. So it's only available online. So they're not in the stores, which um, is probably a smart thing. You don't want people uh, storming the stores and trying to make off with $1,900 each one ounce gold bars. But they've had a huge uh, demand for them, interestingly. So I don't think they necessarily put it out there to be like, make it front page news. In fact, actually, I'm kind of wondering what their incentive was or, or what their their goal was behind putting out gold bars. I mean, yeah, Costco, you can get a lot of things did they do some market research and, and people said, you know what? I love all the stuff I can get at Costco. You know what I really love They really love if they had is gold bars because I, <laughs> I love to get gold bars when I go grocery shopping. So it's only online right now. They've actually limited, limited to two per member. And you do have to be a member of Costco to buy the gold bars. So sorry if you're not a Costco member. And um, they're selling for $1,900 each, which is roughly the spot price of gold. So they're, they're basically selling for what? The price of gold an ounce is right now. And uh, of course, the, the question that it begs is, you know, why do they feel the need? I mean, maybe it's a little bit of a marketing ploy, which if it is, congrats, because I'm talking about it on my podcast. So good job, Costco. You're, you're getting your name in the headlines. Maybe it's because they've done a little bit of market research and they feel like a lot of their customers, this is something that they would want and there is a market for it. Uh, I joked in the email I sent out today that, uh, you know, maybe Costco also plans to sell nuclear fallout bunkers. And I, I don't know what if, if people are, are selling or uh, buying their uh, emergency food preparedness kit. And they're like, well, why don't we sell, sell gold to them as, as well, if that's what they're concerned about. Which, by the way, as I've talked about before on this podcast, if you're if you're preparing for the apocalypse, don't buy gold. OK, gold is not going to help you in any situation where. The U.S. dollar is totally devalued and we're living in apocalyptic times and, you know, the, the, the outside your house is, is, uh, is a wasteland. Gold's not going to help you. Nobody's wanting to trade for your shiny gold bars. That's where food and drinkable water and, you know, actual essentials, that's, that's what you need to buy if that's what you're concerned about, not gold. Okay, enough about that. Let's move on to our fourth article. Uh, this is a really cool interactive map called Move Map. What it helps you to do is filter destinations in the U.S. and it breaks it down by county based on a variety of factors. So for instance, if you're like, okay, I want to live somewhere where monthly rent is between 2000 to 2500 a month, 
I want there to be low state tax burden. I'd like to live in an area where you know, there's a lot of sun, the most sun and very little rain, then it's going to narrow it down. And it's going to show you there's about 16 counties and you, you know, there's all these different like uh, uh, d- different uh, buttons and, and options and sliders. So you can really narrow it down based on a bunch of different criteria. So you can uh, cost of living, demographics, the terrain, the weather, natural disasters, employment rate, poverty rate, unemployment rate, all these different things that you can uh, – all these, all these different uh, factors that you can slide around to narrow down and, and filter out. So there's 16 counties. I just randomly went in and put some different filters. And it's between you know, California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. You can live in any one of those states and it has, meets all of those criteria. So it's actually kind of cool. So if you're kind of wanting to play around and be like, what's the ideal place for me to live? Move Map is, uh, is a nice little fun tool to, to play around with play around with. So check that out. Okay. Popular posts this month. Uh, one post that I put up on the, on the Facebook page that I, I, I was glad it resonated with a lot of people. It's about a financial plan. Unfortunately, financial plan or financial planning is a very broad term. And even though when I usually talk to people and they say, what do you do? I say financial planner. I understand that that doesn't, that in and of itself doesn't actually tell people a whole lot because there's plenty of people that say I do financial planning, but what they really do is they just sell investments or they sell insurance. And so uh, the the graphic shows what people think a financial plan covers, which is just an investment portfolio, and what a financial plan actually covers, which is goals and cash flow and, and estate and taxes and investment and retirement and insurance and debt and all these different things. And the reason it was it was so impactful to me is because 90% of the time when people reach out to me, usually the pain point is something with investments. Not not always, but usually it's I, I want to get started for retirement. I want to make sure I'm on track for retirement. I've had this major life change. I've got this money. I'm not sure what to do with it. Right. So so 90% of the time people are looking for some type of investment advice, which is great. And and it's definitely a very, very important part of your financial plan, but that is not your entire financial plan. And unfortunately, what happens a lot of times is people will seek out somebody to do financial planning for them, and they'll ask them a bunch of questions. They'll say, okay, tell me about this, this, and this. And then they'll come back to them and say, here's my financial plan. My financial plan is that you would buy a life insurance policy or that you would buy these mutual funds. And that is it. That's the extent of it. And as a financial planner, that's not what I want to do. I want to be able to give comprehensive, holistic advice because I understand that everything is intertwined. All of your financial life affects each other. So your your income affects your taxes. Your taxes affect your cash flow. If you buy real estate, that affects what insurance coverage you need to have. If you have debt, that affects what insurance level coverage you need. Like all of these things go together. And unless somebody's seeing the, the full picture and really trying to analyze the full picture, there's going to be gaps. And just saying, hey, okay, I have X number of dollars how should I invest that without knowing anything else about your financial situation? That's not good advice. There's no way that I could give good advice if that was the only thing that I knew is, well, here's how much money and here's when I want to retire, right? And very often, the more valuable advice I'm able to give, like certainly investment advice is important and very valuable, but a lot of times the most valuable advice I've been able to give is something that's helped people save thousands in taxes or maybe the most impactful advice was saying, let's take a step back and let's talk about what this is all about. What are you really aiming for? And it helps to 
shift somebody's total paradigm about around how they're they're doing their monthly budget, how they're using their money, and it allows them to really align the use of their money with what is truly most important. Sometimes the most impactful thing that I can do is help people with their estate plan, whether it's getting a will in place or getting a trust in place, because that could be a huge differentiator, right? Where is your money going to go when you die? Are you sure that it's going to go to the people and the causes that you want it to go to? Because otherwise, you're leaving that up to the state, and that may not reflect your actual wishes. Or having a rainy day fund in place, because you know, God forbid something happens and all of a sudden now, you know, you're faced with an emergency situ- situation and you're going way into debt and it's going to take you a long time to dig yourself out of that hole. So it's it's all of those things that make for a good financial plan. And I think it's just important to reiterate that when you're going and seeking financial advice, you want somebody that can be able to speak to all of those things and see the big picture. So uh, that was that was a popular post this month. Another one was from Gradient. How often do successful leaders experience leadership doubt? I found this really, really intriguing. The survey showed that 90% of successful leaders doubt their leadership experience. Uh, 90% of them doubt it at least once a year. And well over 50%, uh, almost 60% doubt it at least once a month. 26% said they doubt their leadership experience once a week. So when we talk about this thing of imposter syndrome, just remember almost everybody's got it. Almost everybody deals with imposter syndrome. Most of us feel like I don't deserve to be here. I'm not as smart. I'm not as experienced. I don't really know what I'm doing. Not like these other people. All these other people have their life together and they're so polished. And here I'm, I'm just I'm just out here and I'm a nobody and I'm not important and and you know, nobody cares what I have to say or what I have to bring. And almost always that is not the case. In fact, the 10% that never doubt their leadership, those are the ones that I'm concerned about. Those are the narcissists and the psychopaths and those are the people that actually probably shouldn't have positions of leadership because if you never have any side of any kind of skepticism, if you never have any kind of introspection about your own leadership, you're probably a bad leader, right? So confidence in a leader is a good thing, but overconfidence, that leads to a lot, a lot of problems. So remember that almost everybody's dealing with imposter syndrome. So whether you're, so wherever you're at within your job, your, your, your dynamic, whether it's in a church or a business or even within your own family, you may feel like, man, I don't stack up to so-and-so and they've got their life together and they really know what they're doing, but I'm, I'm just clueless. Remember that having a little bit of self-doubt, having a little bit of introspection, that's always a good thing because we want to be able to be humble and understand the nuance of our own deficiencies and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to work on these things. I'm going to try to get better. Recognizing that I've not arrived yet is actually a really important thing in a leader and saying there's always room for improvement and there's always ways where I want to be able to, to do better and to improve. And it's those things that are a good reminder. But I, I, what I would say is don't allow imposter syndrome to paralyze you, right? Don't allow this natural feeling of I don't know if I'm a good leader keep you from moving forward because that's the worst thing, right? The paralysis of analysis to say, I don't know, maybe I'm not as good, maybe I'm not as qualified, maybe maybe I don't have what somebody else has and therefore I'm just not going to do anything. That's where, that's where imposter syndrome really starts to hurt you. So just remember, we all deal with imposter syndrome and the ones that don't are actually the ones to avoid and hopefully that's an encouraging reminder to you. And then lastly, I've got a new blog post out this month, uh, Unlocking the Power of Generosity, Four Ways to Make Big Donations to Your Church and Save on Taxes. So the reason I want you to be aware of this is it's the 80-20 principle, right? Within your church, your organization, most of the financial impact comes from a very small minority of people. 
And for those people that have the capacity and the gift of giving, because that is that is truly a gift. Romans 12 talks about having the gift of giving, just like you have the gift of teaching, the gift of administration, the gift of service. So there's people that God has equipped with the gift of giving and they have the capacity and the desire to give. And we have to make sure that we we understand the best ways for them to be able to do that, that are mutually beneficial, that will help the ministry go forward, but will also help them and be a wise use of their resources. And these are some things that a lot of times people have a desire. They want to be generous. They want to be able to leave a legacy gift to the church. They're just not even really sure the best ways to do that. They're not aware of their options. So if you are a person that wants to make a big gift and God's blessed you and you want to be able to make a sizable donation, whether it's in your lifetime or at the end of your life, you need to read this article. If you're a pastor or a ministry leader and you want to make sure that you can communicate these things and be aware of them so when those opportunities arise that you can communicate effectively, hey, these are some options that you should consider. I want you to check that article and and take some notes. Um, of some great ways to make big donations to your church and save on taxes. So that's it for this month. Thanks for listening as always, and I'll see you on the next episode.